Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the January edition of One Move at a Time, and Happy New Year. Our guest today is David Yada, joining us via Skype from San Sebastian, Spain. David was our April 2021 guest, but I decided to interview him again, focusing only on his behind-the-scenes work for the recently completed World Championship, during which Magnus Carlsen successfully defended his title against Jan Nepomniachtchi. David's photos have often appeared in Chess Life, and he has taken chess photos around the world. He has a book of his photos called The Thinkers that you can purchase from U.S. Chess Sales at uscfsales.com. With a background in journalism, public relations, online marketing, and social media, along with extensive chess experience, he was a natural to become FIDE's chief marketing and communications officer. To give an idea of what David was going through behind the scenes, here is his Facebook post from November 18th, about a week before the championship started. This afternoon, I fell asleep on my laptop, woke up two and a half hours later with my face on the keyboard, missed an appointment for dinner, and I had nearly 100 emails and WhatsApp messages awaiting an answer. Yet, I am enjoying the experience. I never thought I would organize a world championship match. Next best thing to playing in one, I guess. David Yada, welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast for a second appearance. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. And I should say that in case you, David doesn't sound quite himself right now, he's recovering from a recent bout with COVID. Uh, he, he is uh, pretty much recovered. So let's set the stage by describing what your normal day-to-day duties with FIDE are when you're not in a world championship mode. Well, um, the things that I'm wearing two different hats because I'm dealing both with the um, marketing and sponsorship side of chess uh, for FIDE, gathering sponsors and trying to, to find partners. Uh, but I'm also dealing with media and, and chess promotion in, in general. So um, something I like about this is that when you get bored of doing something, you can switch to the other activity and you, um, as long as you can find some balance, you never get bored. I mean, you're not doing the same every day. The con is that it's very demanding doing, you know, doing two jobs at the same time, which is basically what I'm doing. It's, it's very demanding, very tiring, and you never get a moment to, to, to rest, really. And then what were your primary duties for the world championship? Well, um, during the preparation of the championship, uh, I was focused mainly on trying to onboard some big sponsor, um, which was very difficult and challenging. 
um, because we lack data and figures from previous matches. You know that this is the first match that FIDE organizes by, by itself in a very long time, because until now we were outsourcing the, organizing, the organization of the World Championship in, in World Chess, Avon, etc. So the lack of figures, information about viewership and, and, and visitors to the tournament, etc., was a big burden. So um, that part of the job was very demanding, but I think we made very interesting contacts during the process that will materialize for the next uh, championship. Um, and then once the championship was approaching, I was more focused on media coverage, broadcast, video production, etc. This year, um, there was a very important challenge, uh, a very promising opportunity that was working with NBC, NBC Sports. We made this agreement that they will cover the match on a daily basis. Uh, they will produce, we will produ produce for them a half an hour program. And this was something that was mm, never done before, really, in a World Championship match, not for linear TV. Uh, plus, they, they have not only this half an hour program, every day they will repeat the program from the day before. So we're talking about uh, one daily hour of chess on, on TV every day. Uh, this was quite a challenge. I'm putting together the team to produce this broadcast and to this broadcast, this um, video programs and to, to deliver on time the, the day after the game was played. This was quite a challenge, but it was also the part that I enjoyed the most, the, the most during, my, during my work in Dubai. So how big a team did you have to put together just for the video production? For NBC, it was a crew of uh, five people. Five people plus Maurice, Maurice Ashley, who was fantastic. I mean, he was the perfect person for the role. Um, as conductor of the show, he was the voice of the match. He was the MC at the opening and closing ceremonies. Uh, it was really very, um, very rewarding working with Maris and, and the and the crew that we bring. We we brought a, uh, a team from Spain, a small production company from from south of Spain, who have only worked in one chess tournament before in Gibraltar. But and they they have a very special sensibility, and I like very much the interviews that they they did during the tournament during the Gibraltar tournament. Uh, so I really wanted to, to work with them, and I brought them all the way to, to Dubai, and I think they, they did a very good job. I, I like the, the videos, I like the, the, the music that they choose for the videos, uh, the thrill of the videos. Um, I, I think the product that we put together, it, it worked very well, and actually we got, very, we got a lot of prize from NBC, and we got very good figures about um, viewership. We cannot disclose them, but we know that in a few occasions it was the most watched sports program of the day on NBC Sports, which is, I think, uh, quite something. And do you know, are those numbers, when I think NBC Sports, I think just U.S. market, or was this a world viewership for this for this production? No, it was only the, um, the U.S. market. But then we posted the videos. After a couple of days, we posted all the videos on YouTube. I mean, they are available. The only thing is that we had to make the videos public only after a couple of days. Is this the uh, FIDE YouTube channel? Yeah, on the FIDE YouTube channel. And uh, did NBC further edit what was presented to them, or did they just take what your team 
um, ship to them and run with it? No, not at all. They didn't make any edit. They they saw some preliminary words that we prepared, some videos, the intros, etc. And I mean, uh, the quality of the of the materials that we provided was uh, it had very high standards. So the event itself began on November twenty fourth. But when did you begin work? When did the planning stages? When was the first FIDE planning meeting for the World Championship? When did that take place? Well, we have been dealing with Expo for like more than two years, actually. But as you know, everything had to be postponed because of the pandemic, obviously. And then since kickoff, uh, finally in February, so 11, 11 months ago, that's when we signed finally the, the contract with all the details, with everything. And my first trip to Dubai was in March, March 2021. So it was one year, two years and a half more or less of preparation, preliminary discussions and everything, and then one year very, very intense. In principle, in FIDE, I don't get involved in, in events. I don't work in organizing the, the events. But the World Championship is very different. It's a very different species because the, the commercial side of the World Championship and also the media attention that it receives is completely different. It, it is in a, um, in a completely different level. That's why in this particular event, I got very involved. I was like one of the three or four people who were working daily on putting together the, the match. And it was very intense, very rewarding. It was a um, huge learning experience as well. Um, I, I visited Dubai like four or five times during that year. And for the match, I arrived a couple of weeks before the match actually began. Uh, so, yeah, it was almost one year of my life involved in, in, in this project. And I was a little surprised about the detail of, of what you had to work on. It, it appears to me, based on looking in your old Facebook posts, that you designed the match playing table. Is is that correct? <laughs> yes. That I, I wanted, you know, I wanted the table to be something iconic, something in, in the past it used to be that the table where the, the big matches are played was something, you know, kept in a museum or something. Uh it lost importance. Uh, when we started using electronic chessboards. In the past, the, the, the chessboard was part of the furniture, part of the table, you know? Once the chessboard became some independent element, so to speak, the, the table became not so important anymore. And I wanted to somehow recover this. I wanted the, the table to be something, you know, something to keep, something to treasure. I think it is important. And that's why I said to, you know, uh, try to do something special. The, the first idea was actually to build a replica of the table used in Reykjavik, 1972. That was my, my first idea. And I talked to the furniture designer and the Icelandic chess federation, but the problem is that the furniture designer made a contract promising that he would never build a replica of the table, that only two copies were produced, and never again he would build a replica of that uh, particular model that particular design. So we couldn't come to terms and I decided to create my own. So I I know and I love this table from Moscow, um, 1984, and also the one using the Havana Olympiad in 1966. 
And I like them very much. This is a very fine piece of furniture. And I wanted to, to build something like that, you know. And I, I got some experience in, in product design. I, I, I had some companies in the past and I was involved in designing products. So I I made some sketches and somebody built it and I'm I'm very happy and I'm very proud about the table. So let's let's talk a little bit about the level of detail on the table. Uh, what kind of wood or is it is it some kind of composite material? Uh, you know, was is the board built into it or did it rest on top? Tell, tell us some of these details. No, initially I wanted to build in the, the electronic board into the table, but it was a bit too complicated because I could not be there with the artisan in, in Dubai actually building it. So in the end, the, the, the digital board was just uh, laying on top of the table as usual. <clears throat> the, the table is made of wood with a very nice gloss finish in black. And then there is this armrest in leather, in color white. I think it was a very nice contrast. And also there is like a hidden shelf under the table where players could put, you know, this kind of stuff that they normally bring to the table, like bananas or candies or um, a can of Coke or whatever drink. They could hide it if they wanted. So we could keep the, the view clear for the cameras and, and everything. You know, I, I am of the opinion that anything that doesn't belong to the game of chess, like bananas, candies, or bottles of water, should not be on the table. It be someone else. <laughs> um, and while I'm no woodworker myself, I know a lot of people uh, really like these types of details. So what kind of wood is the table made out of? To be honest, I don't know, because when I arrived there, it was already painted. Um, with acrylic paint, so it is difficult to tell what wood was used. I didn't give them any indication of the wood to, to, to be used. Now, I know selecting dates for an event uh, is, is almost a fool's errand, that there are so many factors that have to go in, but given the importance of the U.S. market, I was, I was curious if the start date of November 24th, which coincided with a major holiday here in the U.S. of Thanksgiving, was a factor at all, or... Or, or was it just not even considered? Well, the date has been the, the same for the last, I think, four championships, more or less. November is not a bad month. There are not big sporting events in, in November. So we actually would like to keep these dates for the future. It's not going to happen in 2023 because we need to have the match in the, um, in the beginning of the year. But in general, November is a good month. Um... Thanksgiving is not really a problem. It's, it's the same situation with the World Rapid and Blitz that is during Christmas. Actually, you have a lot of people at home and they can enjoy watching sports. So it's not really a bad moment. And actually, the viewership that we got um, on NBC uh, shows that we were right. That this is not a problem, you know. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And why is the 2023 match going to be the beginning of the year? Well, we need to recover time, you know, because the, this match was postponed for one year and the, the cycle is already ongoing. The World Championship cycle, most of the candidates are already decided. Next candidates is going to take place in June, July, and the match is usually held seven, eight months after the, the candidates. That is more or less the, the time frame. So waiting two whole years when the, the cycle is already ongoing and, and we already know most of the candidates. I mean, we, we need to start recovering time. Okay, that yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I imagine that the 
probably the biggest headache you must have had organizing this year's world or this past year's world championship is COVID. Uh, how how much did COVID restrictions figure into your planning, and what you know did it end up being a big headache for you? Well, of course, this is being a headache for everybody, pretty much. It doesn't matter in what field you work. Um, but organizing events is especially complicated. Um, in the beginning, we were considering all the all the scenarios. You know, we had plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. Uh, in the beginning, we were planning for the scenario that maybe we'll have the match with no audience. Maybe we'll have the match with no media presence on site in the match. Actually, Expo prepared everything to, you know, have a world expo with most of the journalists attending remotely, covering the expo remotely. They, they built a big online platform where you could get all the photos, all the videos, and follow everything that was going on during, during Expo remotely. Because many of the journalists who had planned to cover Expo actually stayed at home. And more or less, it was the same situation for us. We had this big space where we could sit in the auditorium, 700 people. In the beginning, we planned for 100 spectators. Then at some point we got permission to increase to 240. And then in the end it was three, 324, something like that, I think. But it, this was like one week before the tournament. The, the problem with this is that tickets could not go for sale until the very last moment. And that was a problem for many people who were planning to travel to Dubai. They didn't. They didn't go ahead because they could not secure if they could have tickets or not. That is, for me, one of the biggest frustrations with this match, that we could not announce in, in advance and offer tickets in advance. But it was simply because we could not know until the last moment how many people we could sit. So then we had to be very conservative. Also, we planned for a very small press room on, on, on site. There was a, a big media center for Expo, huge place, like three floors uh, with capacity for hundreds of people. Um, but on site, exactly in the venue where the games were taking place, we only had a very small place for like 25 people more or less because we didn't expect many people to travel to Dubai. So these were the main, the main problems, you know. Um, organizer, organizing an event like the World Rapid and Blitz or the Grand Swiss with more participants is more challenging in a way to ensure the, um, the safety of all the players because you have hundreds of people coming from everywhere in the world. In the match, it's very different because you only have two players. It is easier to keep them protected. But at the same time, if something goes wrong, I mean, it will affect the, the whole championship. You know, if one of the players gets sick or something, it will be just imagine it will be a disaster. But with uh, only two players, very best to keep them under control, and you know, they they were very protected. So um, thankfully, everything went well. We didn't have any major incident. There was one journalist who tested positive in the very beginning of the of the match, and that was it. But yeah, organizing events is really a risky activity in, in these times. Does Dubai or the United Arab Emirates have some sort of health official that was responsible for working with you um, on, on COVID protocols? Well, yeah, um, with Expo, 
they had very strict protocols. We normally have to follow the protocol established by the local organization or the local partner. With Expo, everything was very controlled. I mean, everybody accessing Expo had to be either vaccinated or have a negative PCR test uh, with less than 24 hours, etc., etc. <clears throat> and also we had a testing facility, right? It was very convenient because it was right opposite to the, to the playing venue. And we could get tested uh, anybody involved in the organization, the players, the coaches, the the, the Sponsors, the media could get tested for free anytime, as many times as, as they wanted. So I was basically testing because I was coughing a little bit. I always get sick with the air conditioning. I was coughing, so I tested almost on a daily basis, <laughs> which wasn't nice, but you you had to be on the safe side. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've mentioned Expo a couple of times. It, it, was that the playing site? Well, we were playing in the Dubai Exhibition Center which was part of the expo. It was a large building uh, adjacent to the to the expo area. And I know that world expos are not very popular in the US, but they are in the rest of the world. I mean, and, and the one in Dubai was particularly nice, I have to say. They had like, um, I think it was 191 pavilions from different countries in the world. And you could visit each one of these pavilions and get to know a bit more about the country, about the, their plans for the future, but also the gastronomy, the, the local music, the local festivities. It was like, you know, having the opportunity of traveling the world, just taking a little walk. What other kind of work did you have to do with uh, either Dubai or the United Arab Emirates government? Did, did you work with them to, to try to expedite visas for the, the players and their teams, anything like that? Well... As I said before, with uh, with the World Championship, you enjoy a lot of media attention that you normally don't. Uh, for a few days, even people who doesn't follow chess, but they just like sports, they are following the World Championship. That means that you get approached by a lot of journalists, sports journalists in particular, but any kind of journalist, any columnist or any uh, a news editor who comes to you and they have a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity, which is the main quality for a journalist. And I will say that maybe three, four hours of my time per day will go in, in talking to the media, making sure that all the materials that we produce was correctly distributed, the photos and the videos and everything, but also answering questions, you know, and educating people and educating journalists uh, about chess which is something that I like to do. I like to explain things and I like to explain chess to people who are not from the chess world. So that was something that took really most of my part, uh, most of my time in, in Dubai. And then coordinating all this video production, media awards, the, the, the photographers, making sure that every little event was covered, all the all the visits, because you have a lot of VIPs visiting the tournament during, during a match. Um, there were many things to do, you know, <laughs> if I had to put a list of all the tasks that I did during the match, it would be a very long one. When you are dealing with mainstream media, uh, and, and, and you said you enjoy educating them, but I, I imagine you fielded a strange or surprising question or two from the mainstream press. Can you, can you remember any of those specifically? Well, not really. Not really. In general, they asked me the right questions. Um, we we had a problem sometimes with people who were 
uh, in Dubai attending the, the press conference day after day. And they tried to get creative and ask something that wasn't asked before. But that is not so easy. And sometimes this turned into, you know, a little show of extravagant questions and weird stuff that the players didn't quite like. <laughs> the players and some other chess media. But I think it is natural and normally something that I, I told to chess players a few times is that, okay, you will fight, you will face stupid questions very often in press conferences, but you are smart guys and you have to try to be able to provide a smart answer to a stupid question. And in general, this works. And I have to say that uh, both Magnus and Nepo are very good in front, in front of the camera. They were very good at press conferences in general. They were very patient, very cooperative. And, and they gave, in general, very good interviews. Really very good interviews. The flash interviews after the games were very good. And, and the long interviews that they did in, before the match kickoff, they, they were really, very good. Yeah, I was especially impressed with Nepo's composure after losing the the longest world championship game in history. Uh, yes, I was also very surprised. You know, I I went to the stage when they were still they were about to finish the game. I wanted to be there. I wanted to take a photo. I didn't take many photos in this championship, but in this moment, in this particular moment, I was very aware that uh, it was history in the making. So I took my camera and I went to the scene. And the moment they shake hands, I, I entered the stage. I, I wanted to be there. And I was very surprised that Nepo was, you know, very fresh, actually, and talkative. And I think he was, like, still very excited from all the thrill from, from the game. Uh, on the other hand, Magnus was exhausted, really. Like, he, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know if he should stand, uh, stay... On his chair, he was like confused. He was completely, you know, his energy was completely um, depleted. And he didn't even know that he he got the record for the longest game in a, in a World Championship match. I, I told him and he was surprised. Pleased, but surprised. Right away, he pointed out which one, which way, which game was the previous one. He knew that it was the, in, the, in the match between Korsner and, and Karpov. He knew the game right away and the end game and everything. He knew that it was stalemate and how many moves I think he, he knew as well, but he hadn't realized that he got the record for the longest game, the longest victory in a World Championship match. Whenever I hear a story like that about their memories, it, 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 it always boggles my mind. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful to the players. They were very cooperative with the media and I have no complaints whatsoever about anything from the players. You know, they, they were very helpful and and really the hats off to, to both of them and especially to Nepo because it is always more difficult for, for the one who is losing, you know? Well, yes, and and I'm not surprised to hear that about these players, but what about their teams? Sometimes the teams are uh, have to put on the bad guy's hat um, when, when dealing with the organizers. Did you have any experiences like that? Yes, uh, sometimes there is always someone in the team who wants to, you know, reivindicate his role in the team, being super protective or asking for too many things. But that was not the case in, in Dubai. In Dubai, again, I have to say everybody was very cooperative and, and very nice and, and very patient. And we didn't really get any special demands or anything. We no one was making really trouble, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, we got the request to adjust this and that, 
but uh, everything that we were asked for it was completely normal good oh that that's always good to hear as a chess fan yeah um so i want to take um a, a slight tangent here and go to facebook um there's a very popular facebook group called the fide world chess championship 2023 that was just renamed it was 2021 until this match completed and the administrator of that group, Brian Karen, who's also a former guest of the show, uh, posed a question for you. He, he wants to know, what has David learned from this experience that he believes will help him in his work on future championships? Well, um, that is an interesting question. I, we didn't have time to do a proper debrief about the, about the match, I have to say, because, because of what happened with Kazakhstan. I'm having to move the world, the world rapid and blitz to Warsaw in such a short notice. Because of that, um, we still need to sit down, relax, debrief, and and make a little analysis. You know, I can tell you I learned a lot about um, how to run an event because, as I said before, I'm not really involved normally in organizing events, just in the in the media work. But there are many, many little things that I learned, really. Many little things. Um, I cannot single out, single out uh, just one. Fair enough. A similar question for me is, what was your biggest surprise during the event? My biggest surprise? Well, um, the the biggest surprise and the most pleasant one is that really um, there were more people interested in the match than I thought. I mean, the, the expectation and the, the, the attention that the match got, it was well above what I had expected. Even with the Queen's Gambit and the, and the lockdowns and everything and the boom of online chess, still, there were many people people that I didn't expect, you know, visiting the games, uh, sending emails, asking questions, many journalists, many fans, many, many people who got interested in chess during the match to a um, huge uh, new level. I, I will not compare it to London 2018 or to New York or to any previous match that I have covered. Not even when Kasparov lost to Kramnik in 2000. I was there in London and I don't remember the same level of attention. Uh, there is really a lot of people discovering chess these days and people coming back to chess. That, that is also very important. A lot of people who knew how to play chess or they played in school and now they're coming back. And, and it is really big. The amount of people who are coming back to the game these days is really big. We don't see it yet because most clubs and most uh, chess schools are still operating under capacity, you know. But um, I think we can expect very good years. We have very good years for chess ahead of us. Did you have any dignitaries, you know, major politicians, uh, other major chess figures that visited uh, Dubai? Well, mostly local ones. Um, we're, we're expecting the visit of the Prime Minister of Norway, but he she resigned like in October, and the new one was too busy taking over the, the office, and he couldn't come. Um, we received um, an unexpected visit by Gary Kasparov that was not in the plan. Apparently, he was in Dubai on a business trip, 
and he showed up one morning in, in the venue. Uh, he visited the stage, he visited the, the playing area, but he was not there for the game. He was leaving already, you know, he was there in the morning for like half an hour, quick visit, and he left. But that was the, the biggest surprise. I, I didn't even know that he was in Dubai. And it was a pity that he could not visit the, he could not be there in the games, you know, or visit the broadcast or say a few words or be present at the press conference. But it was a very quick visit. So I'm going to read another Facebook post you made. Uh, this one was from November 28th. So it's just right after the match has begun. Uh, you wrote, we work so hard here that I even have blisters on my feet from walking from one place to another during the past few days. But today, finally, the workload was bearable. We are even starting to enjoy the match. Sounds to me like your planning went was very successful if that early in the match you you were able to take a breath like that. <laughs> okay, it is a long event, you know. Normally, after one week, most events are already almost over. This one, after one week, was under control. It was bearable. But yeah, during the first day, that during the first days, the, the three, four days before the match, and the three, four first days of the match, I was walking all the time, you know, from my office to the to the stage, and then to the backstage, and then here and there, and to the um, Expo Media Center. And yeah, really, I got blisters on my on my feet. I was walking maybe 10, 15 kilometers every day because I was like the go-to person for many different things. So it was it was fun. It was something unexpected that I will do physical work during during the match. But yeah, so many so many things to check. And I have to say, Fide doesn't have a big team. We we are still building the team. Um, we are probably understaffed. That became very obvious during the match. Mistakes were made. It is unavoidable. We were all very overloaded. But I I think this will be corrected from from now on. Also, um, Fide is increasing budget now. Finally, we are you know reaping the fruit of all the work, and this will allow us to to invest and do much better in future events. Get more staff, get more resources, and, and work better. We have made a lot of progress, but still there is a long way to go. As far as the size of your organization, I, I, I'm, people probably have the same. Um assumption from the outside about FIDE's size as they do about U.S. chess. They just assume that as a national organization, we must be this huge uh, organization with hundreds of employees and you know nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, sadly. The, our team was much smaller than people probably think. Smaller than probably should. <laughs> but the, the thing is that for this match in particular, we had the, the, the support of Expo. We had a very big partner. And we had uh, like um, a small army of local people working in the event. Expo works with a company called Pico, who produced these these events and uh, anything we needed to print, anything we needed to build, like the uh, like the table that we mentioned before. We will just need to provide the specifications, and um, magically, next day it will be there. So <laughs> that was something amazing. That was the feeling that somebody is watching your back and somebody is delivering what you need. And that was very reassuring. Mm-hmm. This is a big company, Pico, that is working for World Expo and some other big events. And it was really a pleasure working with them. Uh, and they, they, they made it possible. 
Well, David, that sounds like a good place for us to stop, but is there anything else that you want to share from behind the scenes of the World Championship that we haven't covered? Well, I hope, the only thing I hope, my my biggest wish is that the, for the next World Championship, everything is back to normal and the fans can visit and enjoy it. We, we would have liked to have more spectators. We would have liked to have more set activities. Uh, chess open, rapid games, a lot of activity around the match, you know, so people could travel and enjoy it and have live the whole experience. The few people who went there really enjoyed the, the, the match, I can tell you. But it was a very limited number of people because now it's, it's very difficult to make the commitment to, to travel far away to another continent uh, to enjoy, to, but they were to enjoy a chess match that you can enjoy as well from home, you know, because now it's very convenient to watch any chess event from home. You can choose so many good commentators. Uh, the, the, the show that you can enjoy from home is, uh, is really great. Um, so you have to be really patient to, to, you know, go there, book a hotel, book a flight and, and, and be there. But I think it is worth it and we will try to make it even more worth it uh, for the next occasion. Um, there, there is a beautiful story that I would like to tell. Uh, it wasn't told yet. And to me, it's um, one of my favorite stories from the match. There is this person from Denmark, uh, Karsten, Mr. Karsten, who is uh, both uh, blind and deaf. And he traveled all the way to Dubai because he wanted to live the experience of being there and support Karsten. He traveled there with an interpreter, two interpreters, actually. He needs this doubling interpretation uh, from, I don't know how they call this language. It's, it's not sign language, it is the one that they use when they are also blind, you know? I don't remember the, the name right now, but he, he needed two interpreters to, to communicate. And, and he arrived there only on time for the last game of the match because it finished way before than planned, you know? And Magnus, the day he won the championship, he was kind enough to, before going to celebrate, before going for dinner, before going anywhere else, when he finished the press conference, he went to meet this gentleman and he spent some 15 minutes talking to him, 15, 20 minutes, which is not easy to, to communicate, you know, with all this double translation and, and, and everything. Uh, I found this wonderful. It was one of my best moments for me in the match to see this person completely happy. He told me that it was the happiest moment of his life. Magnus was really very kind and very thankful to, to him for, for, you know, giving, giving his time to, to this in a moment where everybody else would have gone to, to celebrate. He was there for this chess fan. And for me, it was a very special moment. We are preparing a video uh, about this because it was not included in the last video recap. It happened in the very last moment, in the very last game of the match. But we are going to prepare something and, and release it because it was something, uh, a beautiful story. So we can look for that on the FIDE YouTube channel? Yeah. Great. Well, that is a great story to, to close us on. And so, you know, David, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, when you've been under the weather, I really appreciate it. Uh, this, this was... Uh, I, th I think it's fascinating for most of us from the outside to, to see or and hear what's going on behind the scenes for you know what most of us consider the you know the, one of the most important chess events of ever, the chess calendar cycle. So thank you for being with us. 
Thanks to you. It is for me really a pleasure to, to be talking to you and to, to be uh, reaching a new audience. Um, I would like Fide to be more in touch with you as chess and to you know bring more activities and work closer with you. So I hope that uh, in the near future, I hope that we can have some Fide event in the in the US. That is really very high on on our list of priorities. Well, great. No, I I think everybody is for that. So um, any any way we can help, let us know. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.